Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. And welcome to episode four of Seeing Red. So if you've listened to the last few episodes we've put out, you'll have realised as well as us that we've had an accidental theme running where everybody we've covered so far has had a first initial, J. And today's no different because this week I'm going to be talking about the life and death of former BBC television presenter Jill Dando. As most of you will probably know, Jill was shot dead on the doorstep of her home nearly 20 years ago now. And there is such a terrible irony with this case because at the time of her murder, she was a co-presenter on the BBC show Crime Watch, where she would often request the public's help in solving often violent crimes. Mm. So for her to become a victim of such a crime and her colleagues to have to appeal to the public for information in, in her murder was something that nobody saw coming at all. Can you imagine as well, you know, it's your co-worker and something like this happens? I honestly can't think of anything worse no. um, than this. And I think the episode after her murder, where it's a monthly show, so the episode went out um, literally a week after her murder. Oh, God. And it's a live show, yeah. so her colleagues would have been feeling horrific. And everybody, you know, has got that, that gap where she would have been and you've still got to carry on, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, I remember watching it actually because Nick Did Ross, you? Nick Ross was a main co-presenter and he obviously presented it and it was just yeah just a mm. really weird episode to watch as you can imagine. Yeah, Jill's murder remains unsolved to this day and over the past nineteen years there have been many twists and turns in this case and theories still abound about the motive and the perpetrator. See, I've got one one theory that I think of, and it's going to be conspiracy theory. Bethan comes out again. Okay, standard. <laughs> At 11.32 on the morning of Tuesday, the 26th of April, 1999, Jill's short life came to a tragic end. She was just 37. Standing outside her home at 29 Gowan Avenue in Fulham in West London, Jill was rummaging for her keys when she was suddenly grabbed from behind and immediately forced to the ground. With Jill now kneeling at an awkward angle with her back to her assailant and her face practically touching the cold, tiled step of her porch, she would have barely had a chance to process what the hell was happening before the barrel of a semi-automatic pistol was pressed to her temple and fired. Gosh. A single bullet entered her head just above her left ear before exiting out the other side. Jill's lifeless body lay undiscovered there for 14 minutes. Now, I just wow. wanted to provide a little bit of context regarding location because Gowan Avenue is a typical inner London street, really middle class. Mm. It would cost you well over a million pounds to buy a terraced house there. Um, and although there are literally hundreds of these terraced houses really close together, on the morning of Jill's murder, it was a Tuesday morning, most people would have been at work mm. or basically just going about their sort of middle class business in their yeah. homes. So nobody... Heard a gunshot at all. It's not the sort of place where people are hanging around on the street or, you know, sitting on their front porch. It's No, it's very well know, to do indoors, area. Yeah. yeah. So nobody heard anything, not even Jill's next door neighbour who was at home. His name was Richard Hughes. Um, ironically, one thing that had attracted Jill to the property when she was house hunting, she really wanted to live in Gowan Avenue. And one of the features of the property that she picked was that it had a hedge out the front mm. which afforded her privacy so I think that was obviously really important for Jill because she was a celebrity but the same privacy that hedge afforded to her was also afforded to the murderer yeah. and that's potentially why 
they were able to, to kill her, absolutely assassinate her in broad daylight with nobody hearing a thing mm-hmm. and nobody seeing her actually killed. That's it, because how often when you walk along the street do you actually peer into someone's front garden? You wouldn't, would you? You wouldn't, you know, look over the Depends hedge. Depends how nosy you are. Exactly. Yeah, and, it, you know, her front door w- was exposed, but there was there was definitely a hedge there that did, did mm. afford her quite a bit of privacy. So Richard Hughes, Jill's next-door neighbour, didn't hear anything significant, but he did see something that morning. Talking to reporters on the evening of Jill's murder, he said he had heard her pull up outside in her blue BMW convertible, followed by the sound of her car alarm being primed, her footsteps footsteps up the path, a scream of surprise and the clanging of her gate. Mm. He said he did look out the window and he saw a man calmly walking away, but to be fair to him, he didn't think anything else of it at the time. He wasn't expecting his next-door neighbour to be murdered in broad daylight. No, and I think if you looked out your window and you saw someone running, you'd perhaps take more notice. But yeah. if you see someone calmly walking away, there's nothing to worry about. I think he probably thought it was a delivery guy or, you know, it could have been someone asking for an autograph or somebody yeah. that knew Jill and just kind of went up and she had a back to them, so they tapped on the shoulder and said hi, and yeah. she turned around and went, ah! I bet that kind of happened. <laughs> I bet that Probably happened to her quite a lot, though. People asking for an autograph or something. Yeah, it was quite know. an exposed so, street, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. On that same morning, another neighbour of Jill's, a woman called Helen Doble, who lived just around the corner, was walking along Gowan Avenue, heading towards the shop to get some photocopying done. Now, Helen kind of knew Jill as neighbours, mm-hmm. so when they would see each other around at the local shops, they'd say hi and have a bit of a chat. And as she was approaching Jill's house, she knew where Jill lived and she saw the blue BMW outside. So instinctively, as she headed towards Jill's house, she did look towards um, the front door. Um, Immediately, she saw Jill hunched over, leaning against the front door. And Helen said she had no time to prepare herself for what was unfolding before her eyes. So she was expecting to just say hi to someone that she quite often would say hi to in the street. And instead she sees someone been shot in the head yeah she said from that very moment everything changed and she knew immediately that she was the witness to a very serious crime um helen approached jill's body and saw that she had changed color and there was blood everywhere Mm. initially she thought jill had been stabbed because i think she said at the time gun crime at that time even in london Mm. was rare that just wasn't the norm particularly in a well-to-do area like fulham So she said that she knew immediately that Jill was dead and she was very careful then not to contaminate the crime scene. So she backed away and called the emergency services. And there is a bit of a weird bit now. Mm. I've never been in a situation she's she's been in, so I don't want to judge her. But I remember hearing this years ago when I watched a documentary about this. So um, when she was talking to the operator, she explained obviously what she'd stumbled upon. Mm -hmm. And then she added, quote, confidentially, it's Jill Dando. End quote. Uh, is no, that just me or is that weird? No, I think that's quite... I think that's really respectful that she, even at that point, wanted to protect someone that she knew and was, you know, not necessarily friends with, but good good enough acquaintances to talk to. I think that's quite respectful that she was like, don't don't send someone who's going to suddenly go, oh my God, it's Jordan. Mm. I, no, I don't think no, it's No, maybe weird. it does I make sense. Yeah. And I, the only other thing I thought, perhaps she'd said that I'm not saying celebrities would get special treatment from the ambulance mm. service, but maybe they 
would take it more seriously. I don't know. Yeah. I really don't know. I think people do have that idea of celebrities being more important. So maybe that was it. I kind of, my immediate thought was that she was trying to protect her, which I thought was quite sweet. Yeah. I, 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 I don't dispute her, mm. you know, that she had the right motive for saying it. I just, it is a funny I found word. it a bit yeah. cringe. Yeah. I think it's quite nice as well. Um, maybe not nice is the right word, but I think it's good that she straight away didn't want to contaminate the scene. Yeah. It's so easy to rush her. over and try and, you know, gather the person in your arms or check I think on the them. thing is that she just knew yeah. immediately that Jill was dead. And reflecting some years later, Helen said that she remembers seeing Jill's beautiful engagement ring with all that hope in it on a dead, lifeless hand oh, with all that yeah. hope snuffed out. Because hadn't she got engaged, like, months before she died? She had, yeah. yeah. Um, understandably, Helen didn't want to be alone at this point. For all she knew, Jill's killer was still around. Maybe they were actually in Jill's house. So mm. she'd remembered as she approached Jill's house, she'd remembered seeing another neighbour um, and she knew they were at home. So she ran to that neighbour's house and frantically knocked on the door before explaining what she'd come across. Mm. That neighbour came to the scene and confirmed Helen's worst nightmare that Jill was definitely dead. The neighbour then ran towards the local doctor's surgery before bringing help back to the scene. However, it then wasn't long before the police, the ambulance service mm. and an air ambulance arrived. I think it was something like 14 minutes later. Yeah. Jill was taken to the nearby Charing Cross Hospital where she was pronounced dead at 1.03pm. News of Jill's murder soon spread and with a tragic and awful irony, her BBC News colleagues had the difficult task mm. of reporting her death on the Lunchtime News, a programme that Jill herself had often presented. Yeah. that's oh. That's just awful. There's so many terrible ironies with mm. this case. Just to give you a little bit more context around Jill's popularity at this time, um, in the days leading up to her murder, Jill Jill's face had been gracing the cover of that week's Radio Times, mm -hmm. which is a popular TV guide here in the UK. And she'd also started presenting a new show for the BBC. I think she'd literally started that the day before. Um, her murder called Antiques Inspectors, and she was even due to present the six o'clock news for the BBC on the day of her murder. Mm. So she really was well known. She's yeah. a big name, absolutely household name at this point. Mm -hmm. So we know how it ends, but where did it all begin for Jill Dando? Born on the 9th of November in 1961 in the seaside town of Western Supermare, Jill was your typical girl next door, and I hate using that <laughs> old cliche, but <laughs> I really think it. It is a cliche, but I think it describes Jill to a T. Mm -hmm. She was so approachable, just a lovely person, mm -hmm. absolutely loved by everybody. As a teenager with a passion for performing, Jill was a member of both the Western Supermare Amdram Society and also the Exeter Little Theatre Company. She also volunteered at Sunshine Hospital Radio in Western Supermare in her late teens. And it was around this time that Jill decided to pursue a career off the stage in journalism. After studying journalism at the South Glamorgan Institute of Higher Education in Cardiff in the early 80s, Jill soon started on the career journey that would see her crowned BBC Personality of the Year two years before her death in 1997. Mm -hmm. And that really was a fitting award for her because, as I said, she absolutely had this amazing personality. People really related to her. Mm. Having worked as a reporter for a local newspaper and then as a presenter for regional TV, the bright lights of London beckoned in the late 80s, and it wasn't long before Jill became one of the most recognised faces on TV. Held in high regard by the BBC, she was often referred to as the corporation's golden girl. Another cliche for yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> 
She was the go-to woman for everything from your light entertainment shows, um, such as the travel programme Holiday, to the hard-hitting series shit like Crime Watch, mm-hmm. which she'd actually started presenting that four years before her death and was absolutely still a presenter of that at the time of her murder. Mm. So she was really established in that programme then? Very much mm-hmm. so, yeah. So let's move forward a bit then and take a closer look at Jill's life in the years and months leading up to her death. Having arrived in London in 1989 at the age of 26, Jill spent the next 10 years working solidly for the BBC and she was adored, as I said, by colleagues and viewers for her warmth and humility. Colleagues described her as having an astute brain and the ability to always laugh at herself. Mm. So she didn't take herself too seriously at all. Whilst everything was going well in her professional life, the same couldn't necessarily be said for her personal life. Jill had a number of failed relationships in her 20s and early 30s, but she had found love again when, in December 1997, she met Alan Farthing, a soon-to-be-divorced gynaecologist, when a friend set them up on a blind date. This was a bit of a whirlwind romance, which saw the couple announce their engagement at the end of January in 1999, Mm -hmm. so literally three months before she was murdered. Um, and just a year, really, after they'd met and very shortly after Alan Farthing had finalised his divorce. So it really was pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Their wedding was also then booked for the 25th of September that same year. And in the months before her death, Jill had been busy planning that perfect day. Shortly after her death, friends said she'd also been excitedly talking about her hopes of becoming a mother. And oh. perhaps that's why it was such a whirlwind. That's so sad. At 37, perhaps she was mm. thinking time's ticking. I don't think that's too much of a whirlwind from like the engagement to get married, though, because that's how long mm. I, I got engaged. But then they'd only quite... met in December oh, yeah, 97, honest, yeah, so they'd have been married just over 18 yeah, months later. Wow. And, uh, you know, he just managed to finalise his divorce. But yeah. Yeah. Oh, bless her. It's so sad, isn't it, when you've got those plans in place and things that she's got. She'd had such a successful professional life up to this point, and then her personal life was absolutely mm-hmm. everything was slotting into place. Yeah. Uh, you know, just at the wrong time for Jill. Mm. At the time of her murder, Jill wasn't actually living at the house on Gowan Avenue. She had moved into her fiancé's house in Chiswick, which was just a few miles around the corner, and she put the house up for sale. She made infrequent trips back to the house, and it is believed that she was only there on the day of her murder, as she needed to refill the paper in her fax machine. Remember, this is 1999, (laughs) and way before email really kind of took off. It was an earlier when you said um, the woman was going to the shop to do some photocopying and I was just like, adorable. Yeah. Um, Jill left her fiancé's house pretty early that morning. She had a quite busy day ahead of her. I think she had a fashion shoot for a project she'd been working on. She also had a wedding dress fitting and she was also due to be working late into the evening. On her way to the house on Gowan Avenue, she visited a petrol station on the nearby Great West Road, as well as the King's Mall Shopping Centre in Hammersmith, um, to purchase an ink cartridge for the fax machine and some paper. And just six minutes before her death, she visited Cope's Seafood Company, which is a fishmonger's. Mm. I've told you it's middle class. Mm. Um, They're based on the Fulham Road, so literally just around the corner from the road that Jill lived on. Um, if you're interested in what she bought there, it was two fillets of Dover sole. For, I don't eat. I don't really like fish. Dinner. I'm going to be honest. Okay, I'll let you off fish. then. <laughs> All of this is known for certain because she is captured on various CCTV cameras as she goes about her morning. The footage is really chilling. I remember mm-hmm. seeing it at the time, and I reviewed it again when doing the research for this case. And it's just awful knowing that when you're seeing her just literally going about her business, she is minutes away 
from being gunned down in broad daylight when she is literally two seconds from safety of her own home. Yeah. It's so often in, in cases you see, you know, the CCTV footage of that person before they went missing or, or the last moments and they're asking, can you piece together anything that happened after this point and it's just so harrowing it's all really haunting i think Mm. yeah and if you're wondering why i've gone into so much detail in terms of jill's Mm. shopping expedition that morning um i wanted again to provide a bit more context because if you think about it when she was stood outside her front door at half past 11 that morning she would have literally been laden down with various shopping bags she'd have been preoccupied hunting for her house keys which by the way was still in her hand when her body was Mm -hmm. found um, and basically, she just wouldn't have been paying any attention to her surroundings, which is completely understandable. Yeah. She wasn't expecting um, to have to do that. So, um, so yeah, she, she wouldn't have had a wits about her at mm. all. And I think you're probably going to come on to this, but I also think how either opportunistic or knowledgeable the killer must have been. Because she wasn't living there and all of this, and it's six minutes after she's gone and bought some fish like it's just yeah, so I, random I think you've not... hit the nail on the head I would we'll come on to the theories there's mm. there's four theories that I'm going to cover off towards the end of today's episode oh, but episode four four episode theories, four, four theories yeah. but I I would agree I think somebody just happened to be in the right place at the mm. right time for their own kind of motive or it was somebody that absolutely knew everything about Jill where she was going to be that morning mm-hmm. and had a motive for killing her yeah Whilst news of Jill's brutal slaying started to land with colleagues, friends, family and of course the general public, Scotland Yard began what would be one of the country's longest running and most costly murder investigations in criminal history. Wow. Known as Operation Oxborough and the largest criminal investigation since the hunt for the Yorkshire Ripper, a crack team of detectives was assembled in the hours following Jill's murder. As you can imagine, there was fevered speculate, speculation over who may have killed Jill and what the motive could have been. And the murder and subsequent investigation was featured very heavily in the press and on TV in the coming days and weeks. Mm-hmm. At this time, the Met Police were already under immense public scrutiny and they were also experiencing unprecedented media attention as there had been two bombings in London in the days leading up to Jill's murder, one in Brick Lane and one in Brixton. Can you guess who this was? No. No? You'll probably know the name. Oh, okay. Um, the perpetrator was called David Copeland and he was mm. known as the London Nail Bomber. Yeah. He did go on to strike once more in the heart of London's gay scene in Soho before being caught. And many commentators at the time were criticising the police for their lack of progress mm-hmm. in their hunt for Copeland. I think there was almost a sense of panic at this time yeah. in London. Um, who's going to be next? A forensic examination of the crime scene was undertaken by police. However, it soon became apparent that the scene had been severely compromised by the medical services who had attended to Jill and also the members of public and the neighbours that were on site, which is completely understandable yeah. because they were all preoccupied with, apart from Helen Doble, who had mm. the foresight to think, she's definitely dead, I need to preserve the scene. Everybody else was preoccupied with trying to save Jill's life. Unfortunately, yeah. although her death was pronounced at one o three p.m. over an hour after she was found, she was dead um, pretty much on impact. Mm. And I think that's something you find all the time, isn't it? Like when we were talking about John Palmer, you know, the CPR that they tried to do and that sort of thing. It, the, Massively the hindered the investigation. Is yeah. going to cover up a lot of what actually happened. So police were unable to obtain anything of much significance. However, they did locate the bullet, which was examined and believed to be from a reactivated gun 
or one that had been adapted in some way. Okay. A team of 50 specially trained officers scoured the surrounding area for the murder weapon. They looked in drains, sewers, on the riverbank and in the local park. However, they didn't find it. Um, so, with the lack of a murder weapon, the police turned their attention to analysing the witness statements. Did they ever find the gun? No. Right, oh wow. Never found okay. it. Several witnesses said they had seen a man at the scene, as we know Richard Hughes, Jill's next-door neighbour, mm-hmm. had seen a man walking calmly away from the scene. But there were various other sightings. Witnesses reported seeing a sweating man, a man in a wax jacket, another sweating man in the <laughs> local park talking on his mobile phone in a really agitated way, oh, okay. a, a sweating man at a bus stop, a man in a suit. The list just basically goes on and on. Lots of sweaty men in this Lots part of Lots of sweaty London. men, yeah. I think the thinking was that they were suspicious because yeah. they had, you know, this is somebody that's run away from the yeah. scene. And it's stressed. late April, it wouldn't have been that cold, it could have been quite warm at that point, I don't know. Um, so there were lots of sightings, but absolutely no one had seen mm. the attack. Yeah. In all, over 2,000 people were named by the public as being responsible for Jill's murder. Wow. And I think this just goes to show the difficulties the police face when a case is so high profile. Mm-hmm. And we definitely saw the same with the case of the Yorkshire Ripper. Yeah. The police were besieged with information. And at that time, they didn't really have an effective system for filing that information and mm. reviewing it. But then also with the Yorkshire Ripper case, there was a lot of cover-ups and just yeah, the, generally the police they, being shit. They were <laughs> led in the wrong direction, as we mm. know. Um, but yeah, you know, 2,000 people were named and the police have got to take that seriously yeah. and look at every single one of those people to narrow it down. I think people, especially when it's a celebrity, they want to help. So yeah. they're thinking to themselves, oh, my neighbour did something dodgy, I'm just going to quickly ring and not thinking about the fact that your neighbour did something dodgy the next day or something like that. So it's good that they're trying to help. As I mentioned earlier, in an ironic turn of events, Scotland Yard turned to the very programme Jill used to present in order to appeal for help in finding her murderer. Speaking years later, Jill's former colleague on the show, Jackie Haynes, who was a um, serving police officer at the time and a Mm -hmm. co-presenter, she commented that she and everyone else on on the show just never thought in a million years they would be making a, an appeal about somebody they knew, mm. let alone somebody that was a you know big co-presenter on that show. Um, she said that they all felt a massive sense of pressure to use their experience to nail down mm. the person responsible. I and, think because we made a joke, didn't we, in one of the episodes, I said, you know, oh, if you got murdered, I'd do a podcast on it. And it's just a complete joke. But actually, can you, um, like... Not, not even joking. I think I need like, at least 12 months Like, to get Jesus, yeah. like, it's not even funny, like, to think of it in oh, a real horrific. situation. Yeah. And it is so easy to make a joke like that and then think to yourself, actually, these people were in that exact position. And this was literally a week after her murder. Mm-hmm. They were having to go on live TV, on prime time, 9pm, on BBC One. That show would have been probably watched by 15, 16 million yeah. people in the UK. Um, if you... Um, are a fan of Crime Watch or remember watching it, there are loads of episodes on YouTube mm. and the episode after Jill's murder is also on there. I yeah. don't know if it's a full episode, but there's certainly quite a bit of it. And yeah, it really does make very difficult viewing. I was um, I was still a kid 
back in, in these days. I would have been 10 at this point. Ten. So my mum and dad watched Crime Watch and then they wouldn't really let me watch because they thought it would give me nightmares, which it probably would. But then sometimes I'd just like sneaky, like just stay really quiet in the corner of the lounge and then carry on watching TV with them when it was on. So. I, th- I think it was Crime Watch that sparked my yeah. initial interest in mm-hmm. Crime because I was probably about 10 when I started watching it. And it was almost the one thing I was, I was allowed to watch post-Watershed <laughs> at that time. Yeah. Um, I probably shouldn't have been watching it, but yeah, I did. <laughs> As Jill was laid to rest at Clarence Park Baptist Church in Western Supermare a month after a killing, it was becoming apparent that this was going to be a long and complex investigation with multiple lines of inquiry. The Met Police were under mounting pressure to find the murderer and the investigation was really intense. Police reviewed hundreds of hours of CCTV footage from the morning of Jill's murder. They searched through 80,000 mobile phone records for the Fulham area for that time and they contacted every one of the 486 people in Jill's Filofax. Again, it's 1999, (laughs) so... Firefaxes were very popular then. I was surprised when to hear you say about mobile phones. I don't know why, I just assumed. I think they came in probably from 96, 97 yeah. onwards. It's really mad. I always think of it as like, you might have had like a car phone. Do you remember the car phones? Or they yeah, were like attached I, in the middle. But... I reckon that was more late 80s yeah. car phones, mm. early 90s. Yeah. From mid to late 90s, mobile, mobile phones were pretty well used. Yeah, but then, yeah, Filofax. I used to have a Filofax diary. Yeah. I have an actual Filofax because I was a child, so... I didn't really have business contacts, but I used to have a little diary. So the reason the police in particular looked at the CCTV footage was, mm-hmm. I think they looked at something like 155 cameras, and they really wanted to see whether Jill was being followed yeah. by anybody that morning. And mm-hmm. actually, from everything they looked at, they said, no, she's not been oh, followed. So she wasn't doing anything particularly like routine, and, and yet no. wasn't being followed. Mm. Um, if you're thinking about the fiancé at this point, I don't know whether you would be, but... It's all, you know, that's the usual, isn't it? I think most, it's fair to say cases. that the nearest and dearest would um, often fall under suspicion in the yeah, very early days definitely. of the investigation. And of course he did, but the police did do a full check on his background and he was very quickly ruled out. So mm-hmm. they were absolutely satisfied that he had nothing to do with Jill's murder. There was no motive, there was no evidence there. I seem to remember as well that he was away that weekend okay i think he was away and so they were kind of like well he definitely was wherever he said he was it was something like that so mm. um are you thinking of joey Yates? no i don't think so mm. i don't know because she'd left his home on the tuesday morning so I she was staying with him yeah oh, okay i don't know yeah the police looked closely at those who were first on the scene as well and helen doe will have seen her interviewed in fairly recent years and she's just really open about it. She's like, yeah, I was first on the scene. I found Jill's body. I knew that I was going to be on a list of suspects. However, the police again looked into her background. They looked into the background of, of others that were on the scene. Mm-hmm. And they ruled them out very quickly in mm-hmm. the investigation. Operation Oxborough turned its attention then to the theory that Jill was killed by a stalker. After all, she was well-known, intelligent and beautiful. And it was more than likely that she had one or two deranged mm-hmm. fans. To be fair, when you're a celebrity, all sorts of weird shit can go down. Mm-hmm. And I think this case really shone a spotlight on some of the shit celebrities have to go through. Because in the weeks following Jill's death, it emerged that two Lloyds Bank employees had been illegally accessing Jill's financial records. Oh, that's awful. And doing credit checks on her. Oh my gosh. 
That's um, horrible. Additionally, one man had tried to take over her BT telephone account so that he could see um, the numbers that she was calling. Oh, God. And it also emerged that somebody else had attempted to take over all of her utility accounts. Weird. So, yeah, so it's. Re- I suppose this case then would have highlighted for other celebrities then some of the risks that they were... And some know, of the steps they can take yeah. to look after themselves, yeah. Mm. In all, police were able to say with confidence through their investigations that 150 people had an unhealthy relationship wow. or interest, rather, in Jill Dando. Um, however, there was no evidence for any of those individuals taking that further. So 150, but none of them are... None of them were a serious suspect. Mm -hmm. Although it was quickly ascertained that these people had nothing to do with the murder, it just goes to show how many people come under suspicion Mm -hmm. when a case is as high profile as this. So the police did have a very difficult task in Mm -hmm. terms of narrowing down a comprehensive list of suspects. And also, can you imagine being that person who's just, you know, you think to yourself you're just being a bit cheeky and you're trying to do this, and then you get, um, you know, like questioned by the police for... The fact that the person you've been stalking or looking at has actually been shot. So it might give you a bit of a wake-up call not to be such a freak. <laughs> yeah. As the one-year anniversary of Jill's murder approached, the police were getting desperate and decided to revisit evidence that had been presented to them in the early days and weeks of the investigation. To me, this just smacks of desperation. Mm-hmm. It really does. I think they genuinely were desperate at this point. Who's going to really remember something from a year before? And going back to the beginning, yeah, it's almost like clutching at straws. Mm. We've got no other leads to pursue. We'll go right back That's to the what very it beginning. Like, yeah. Upon reviewing some of the early leads they'd received, it became apparent that a man who lived just half a mile from Jill had been brought to the attention of the police in the days following her murder. Apparently, a taxi company that this guy had attended on the morning of Jill's murder, which would have been really close to the scene. Mm. Um, they reported him to the police, I think, on that day or the next day for acting strangely. Okay. And they really felt that he was potentially trying to gain a, uh, an alibi oh, okay. so by being he, there. So he'd taken a taxi or did he work he at the taxi firm, He just turned up at the taxi offices mm-hmm. and was kind of hanging around oh, and just being okay. a bit suspicious. And they were like, you've got no reason to be here. So they wondered afterwards, is this guy, was he there just to try and create an alibi for himself? Yeah. Because it's not going to be known exactly what time he walked in and out of that taxi office. Exactly. And it, it could have been just enough to, to cover it for him. So this man's name was Barry George. Born in we Hammersmith, know that name. we do. Born mm-hmm. in Hammersmith in 1960, he was the youngest of three children. He suffered from epilepsy, and a year after his parents' divorce, at the age of 13, he was sent to a council boarding school in Berkshire for boys with emotional and behavioural difficulties, mm-hmm. as it was termed back yeah. then. Now we would probably just call it ADHD. Um, in what would become a common theme in adulthood, he told the boys there to call him Paul Gad, the real name of Gary Glitter, mm. the paedophile pop star. After leaving school, he too had worked for the BBC, not Gary Glitter, although he probably did as well. Um, but Barry George had worked for the BBC, though not at the same time as Jill. Okay. He worked there as a messenger, but he was almost mentally incapable of holding down a job, and this was the only job that he had. After leaving the job, Barry George remained interested in the BBC and he used to visit BBC Television Centre on a regular basis to collect a copy of the BBC's in-house magazine, Mm. which I find weird because that would have been for staff. Yeah. So what were they doing giving him a copy? But then I suppose if he'd made 
made friends or something and they saw him as a bit harmless, they'd probably just think, well, what's, you know, there's nothing in there that's particularly private. Perhaps, yeah. I don't know. Throughout his adult life, Barry George was continually in trouble with the police for all sorts of bizarre things. In the early 80s, he was found by royal protection officers in the grounds of Kensington Palace with a knife and a length of rope when Prince Charles and Princess Diana were at home. Is that scary? Yeah. Further convictions for sexual assault followed and he was reported to the police on numerous occasions for following women. That was almost Mm. his MO. That was the thing that he did. He followed women constantly. With an obsession for celebrity that had presented itself in childhood, he was constantly changing his name to that of TV stars and singers, and he was often convicted for his crimes under whatever name he'd assumed at that time. yeah, I've heard that about him. So this made it really difficult for the police to keep him on their radar Mm. as a potential suspect in similar crimes that were being committed. Yeah. So he he did fall off their radar for that that very reason. It does surprise me that you wouldn't be told to somehow prove what your real name and is. Really, I thought that when I was researching this. Yeah. Yeah. Just, oh, that's what you tell me your name is, so I'll just write that on the internet. But then how would they what? know? How would they know? If you're saying that's my name and they're saying, have you ever been known by other names and you say no, there's no database. Yeah, because there wouldn't can... have been database. And I just, I just don't know. Be I would have thought that you'd know. have to prove... I if anyone like knows it's a database, please get in touch Yeah, tell us know. what was going on back then, that you could just give the police any random old name. <laughs> So, Barry George was an avid gun enthusiast, mm-hmm. and he'd also served in the Territorial Army, which is kind of like the army, but for volunteers, mm-hmm. um, if you don't know what it is. And he also visited a nearby gun club on several occasions, so very interested in guns. Having looked into his background, the Metropolitan Police were now confident that they had sufficient evidence to charge Barry George with the murder of Jill Dando. Oh, so they'd made, evidence did yeah, they have? They'd, they'd made some preliminary uh, sort of background checks, mm-hmm. found that he was a gun enthusiast, that he used to work for the BBC, that was There's something that made them suspicious. Mm-hmm. And he had been reported to the police in the days following Jill's murder. And he lived really close by. Mm-hmm. So I kind of understand, and when we think maybe the police were cl- clutching at straws... You probably are going to hone in on you this guy. You might see things that aren't as important and see them as more important. And unless they charge somebody, they can't take the investigation no. to the next level. So as we'll see with this, once they charged Barry George, they began a search of his home and it was apparently a fucking mess really? with newspapers piled from floor to ceiling. Oh. And yes, some of those newspapers did feature Jill, but... You've got mm-hmm. to What think, newspapers didn't at that yeah, time? Yeah, this time, you know, she was featured in, in the press all the time. Um, and it's not like he had a kind of scrapbook or he'd highlighted yeah. articles on, on Jill. Um, so, to be fair, um, this didn't necessarily suggest that he'd been keeping a close eye on her. only newspapers that featured her, that would be different. Yeah. Or, yeah. Like a but this guy's a hoarder. Her. This mm-hmm. guy's keeping copies of all of the newspapers mm. and some will just happen to feature Jill. Notwithstanding that, they did find four copies of the Jill Dando memorial issue of the BBC's in-house magazine. Mm -hmm. So following her murder, he'd gone along to BBC Television Centre and asked for a number of copies of that magazine. Mm -hmm. Bit suspicious. It is a bit suspicious, but also he was already doing that with all the other magazines. True. True, yeah. Yeah. But four copies. That is a bit, bit excessive. Detectives took a coat from the property for further examination and they developed a number of films which showed that Barry George had been stalking 480 women. 480? How did he have time to do anything else? Well, he didn't work, did he? That was probably his job. 
that's ridiculous. For I don't think I could like have four hundred and eighty Facebook friends and keep track of all their lives. No. I don't follow four hundred and eighty people. Although the police found no guns or ammunition at his flat, they did find evidence to prove that he was a gun enthusiast and they'd conducted those background checks as well. When Barry George was interviewed at the Hammersmith Police Station, he initially said that he'd got no interest in guns. Mm. When they asked him that question, he said, no, absolutely not. I have nothing to do with guns and never have. And the police knew then that he was lying oh, to that's them. that's suspicious to be start lying straight away. Absolutely, yeah. And the police looked into his background further, so they could see that he had visited a gun club. I think it was in Kensington on, on eight occasions. Mm. And he'd actually asked to become a member of that club and had his request refused. Don't know the reasons, but it could be on sort of mental health grounds, I don't Mm. know. Um, At the police station, he was asked to take part in an ID parade and he refused, which was his right and he would have had legal representation. So perhaps there was a valid reason why his lawyer said don't do it. But it's again a bit suspicious. It is. However, that didn't stop the police because they took a photo of him and they did an ID parade, like a virtual one Mm -hmm. on a laptop. And they called in Richard Hughes, Jill's next-door neighbour, and a man who lived opposite who had also seen this guy Mm. calmly walking away from Jill's house. So don't forget this was a year after Jill's murder. Um, And to be fair, they didn't identify Barry George Mm -hmm. in that lineup. But would they have identified him because it was a year later? Or would that image of that guy have been really clear in their head and it just wasn't Barry George? Yeah. Back at the lab, forensics had made an interesting discovery. They found a minuscule trace of firearms discharge in the pocket of the coat that they'd taken from Barry George's flat. Furthermore, the chemical composition was exactly the same as the bullet that had killed Jill. Okay, wow. They also found one fibre of material from a pair of trousers George owned on the rain jacket Jill was wearing when she was murdered. So it was a microscopic... Mm fibre and I think it was one thousandth of an inch in width. But it freaks me out that they can find things like that. That's and that's twenty years ago, yeah. Mm. One year after his arrest, his trial took place at the Old Bailey and he pleaded not guilty. Most of the UK press and media were there. This was a massive trial. Throughout the trial he sat with a psychologist as his defence were concerned with his ability to understand what was being said Mm. and take in everything. Um, So he really did um, have some kind of mental incapacity there. Mm. Um, The defence's case was that Barry George was a man who was vulnerable, mentally incapable of carrying out such a crime. And anyway, they said that he did have an alibi for his whereabouts at the time of the killing, however flimsy that may have been. Despite there being some forensics evidence, due to it being somewhat minuscule in nature, so yes, we've got those two bits of evidence, it was very much, you know microscopic Mm. the case was largely therefore centered on circumstantial evidence and the judge said that's okay if the jury if you the jury want to convict him on circumstantial evidence alone then that's okay i will accept a majority verdict okay so it is that reasonable doubt thing you know even if the evidence is circumstantial do you have reasonable doubt or not yeah Mm. so i'm not going to get too hung up on the trial because Mm -hmm. I want to talk more about um, a subsequent appeal. Spoiler alert, he gets found guilty. And to cover off some of the theories as well. So in October 2001, uh, the jury of six women and five men found Barry George guilty of the murder of Jill Dando and he was sentenced to life in prison. 
Barry George appealed his conviction in 2002, however that was turned down. He did persevere and escalated his case to the Criminal Case Review Commission, which referred again to the Court of Appeal. At this time, he was heavily supported by his sister. Mm-hmm. She uh, was with him throughout this process. And it takes a long time to appeal a conviction, so mm-hmm. it was some years later that he actually um, was able to have a retrial, which I'll come on to in a bit more detail. Mm-hmm. So at this appeal, um, when it was appealed again, the court heard from expert witnesses from the Forensic Science Service that it was no more likely that the gun residue particle found in Barry George's coat pocket had come from a gun he'd fired than from anywhere else. Mm-hmm. I suppose that's it. If you've, if they're doing testing in a lab, it may there well could be, be cross contamination. Yeah. There could be multiple explanations, yeah. and I'm no expert in that field, so I don't know what they yeah. could be, but the expert was saying that, yeah, it could be from mm-hmm. um, a gun that killed Jill um, with the bullet that matched that, or it could be from absolutely any other gun. Yeah, and I also think if you've put the gun that you've shot someone with in your pocket, there might be a bit more than just a minuscule amount yeah. of residue. But again, I'm not a gun expert, so I don't know. The Lord Chief Justice Lord Phillips observed that if this evidence had been given to the jury at the trial, there is no certainty that they would have found Barry George guilty. Mm-hmm. So they couldn't say, you know, well, you've given us this extra evidence, but we still would have had the same outcome. No, it would have been it a completely been different, different ballgame. Yeah. Yeah. And for this reason, his conviction had to be overturned. The CPS decided to proceed with a retrial, and in this trial, the firearms evidence was excluded by the judge. So the only piece of actual forensics evidence that could link him to Jill's murder was that tiny fibre. It was actually a tiny fibre of blue polyester um, that was obviously discovered on the raincoat Jill was wearing when she was killed. That fibre allegedly came from a pair of blue CNA trousers. CNA is an old shop that closed down like 20 years ago. Yeah, how many people would be possibly wearing those trousers? Well, this is it, He made them himself from magical fabric that only he owned. Exactly. CNA was a really big shop at the time. Yeah, that's ridiculous. People would have been buying clothes from there. He wouldn't have been the only guy um, that Jill would have come across that wore blue polyester shitty trousers from CMA. It's like nowadays, then, like someone was wearing like an M&S jumper. Yeah. Well, who isn't? So, hmm. His defence successfully challenged the prosecution then that this fibre could have come from another source. Mm -hmm. George's lawyers also argued that he lacked the intellect to carry out the murder. His IQ was 75, Mm -hmm. which puts him in the bottom 5% of the country. So, similar to you, Bethan. (laughs) Fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, he scored even lower in the bottom 1% for memory and what they call executive testing. Um, these were basically measures of his ability to plan and organise himself and carry out or execute various things. So he he really did lack intellect. Mm-hmm. And going back to what we said at the beginning, this is either a really professional assassin or just some random guy in the right place at the wrong mm-hmm. time. Um, it, it, it would have had to have been that if it was going to be him because yeah. he could not have planned this and pulled it off without completely fucking it up. I suppose the only thing with him that you could be in the sort of the favour of saying he did it is if he's stalking 480 was it 480 women yeah um he's pretty good at following people yeah and not being spotted so maybe but so then he was co- he was, was constantly him. being reported to the police yeah. for following women so he was doing it all the time but he wasn't obviously that subtle oh, about okay. it yeah, I see yeah. What you mean. so on the 1st of august in 2008 eight years after he was sent to prison mm. 
Um, he was finally acquitted of Jill's murder, his retrial. I think that's the most awful thing when people... It does take a long time to get your case appealed and you're just in jail that whole time. I think there's a really bad bit coming up, actually, mm-hmm. because um, shortly afterwards he quite rightly launched a bid to sue um, the CPS for £1.4 million in damages mm-hmm. um, because he'd been in prison for eight years for a crime he didn't commit that had been proved in court he didn't commit it but the ministry of justice reviewed that application and turned it down and they said that the cps weren't actively pursuing anyone else for jill's murder so in a way they were kind of saying (sighs) you've got off on a technicality yes you've been found not guilty but we're not going to be looking for anybody else because we think you did it that's awful and his reputation you know would have been completely in tatters from all the press coverage and obviously people thinking that he was guilty so even though he's been let off now he's going he's being allowed out something like that is going to make everyone think well it was just a technicality you're you're clearly guilty on that note he did successfully sue a number of news Mm. outlets including news international who i think had published a story saying that he was obsessed with Sky TV presenter Kay Burley and had been writing to her and they did, um, that was found not to be true, they did issue an apology and them and other organisations paid Barry George hundreds of thousands of pounds Mm -hmm. in libel damages, so he did get some compensation for having his name dragged through the mud That's really good and it kind of, I know like you mentioned earlier about the Johnny Yates case and that's really similar. Yeah, Christopher Jeffries sued for hundreds of thousands of pounds and yeah Mm. Absolutely. So if it wasn't Barry George, then who the hell did kill Jill? Mm-hmm. It was reported following a cold case review by the police after Barry George's acquittal that Jill was killed by a professional assassin in what they called a hard contract execution. So that is the mm. police saying that some years after. And it does seem seem like it, doesn't it? To me it does, because it's very quick, it's all done precision they shot her in a place where you'd know that she was definitely going to die they were either incredibly clever or incredibly lucky and Mm. i don't think anyone can have that much luck that they can kill somebody on what is still a fairly busy street in central london Mm -hmm. in broad daylight on a random tuesday morning a high profile person and nobody hears it or really Mm -hmm. sees it yeah so the gun, they also said the gun was pressed against Jill's head, which prevented the killer from being splattered with her blood, and it also diminished any sound. So that could have been what diminished the sound. The, the killer could have had a silencer on mm-hmm. it as well. But it does sound like somebody who knew what they were doing. Yeah, because I don't think I, I wouldn't have known until you just said that, that you're supposed to put it against yeah. their head to make sure you don't get covered in blood. Like, I just assumed that the killer would have been covered in blood, to be honest, so... So as I said earlier, there's four different Mm. theories that I wanted us to discuss. Theory one, Jill was targeted by a prominent crime family. I'm mentioning no names on this occasion, Beth. Um, I don't want them to come knocking at my door. Yeah, I'm glad. So yeah, was she targeted by a prominent crime family, perhaps from North London, um, for investigating (laughs) crime on TV? Yeah. I think um, that is such a key thing, though. If she's reporting on crimes on Crime Watch, and that's that's a family that she's reported about, you could well... Or were they, were they linked to um, other people that she was reporting yeah. about and was it revenge for them? Yeah. Um, or was it just a crime family going out there and saying, this is how much we run London? I think if it was something like that, they probably would have made some sort of statement or made 
some sort of thing about this is why we've done it. Potentially sort of boasting so, to yeah. kind of get it out there. But we probably hear that it was a, there was oh we're just showing this. But we might not but, hear that. Maybe that's common mm, knowledge in the criminal underworld. That's true. And they don't grasp. You need to get more you need to get more um, more contacts in the criminal underworld. I'm working on it. I'm working <laughs> on it. Um so that was um that was a line of inquiry that the mm-hmm. police pursued. However, when they charged Barry George, they immediately dropped all other lines wow. of inquiry, which I, I sort of understand that, but that wasn't ever revisited. Mm-hmm. Um, two, Serbian Mafia could have carried out the hit. So this is really interesting because detectives were told um, Serbian mobsters based in Britain had plotted the assassination of Jill Dando over drinks at a nightclub in the West End of London called Scandal. Apparently, yeah, great name. Apparently, the murder was revenge for a NATO-led bombing of a Serbian TV station. And three days after Jill's murder, the BBC took a call from someone claiming to be from Serbia. This person made death threats against a number of presenters presenters at the corporation, including two presenters on Watchdog, Alice Beer and Anne Robinson. Mm -hmm. And in the month in which she was killed, Jill had fronted an appeal for Kosovan Albanian refugees, which is believed to have enraged Serb militants. Mm. And I think to just come up with the story about the way I know that these people were discussing something in this club, blah, 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 that's quite a random thing to come up with. So maybe someone did hear. It gets more disturbing because Mm -hmm. four Serbian men recently, so that was in sort of June, I think they were on trial. What, this year? This year, went on trial over a killing which bared striking similarities to that of Jill's. Oh, that's really interesting. They are accused of assassinating somebody called Slavko Kuravika. I've probably wow, pronounced that, was... that correctly, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but this was a guy who was a journalist and a critic of the Serbian regime, and he was shot dead in the head at point-blank range. And although this was only just coming to court in the last couple of months... He was shot dead just 15 days before Jill's murder. Wow. How weird is that? Yeah, that is... And also for there to have been this Serbian link. And then, yeah, that's really interesting. I'd never have considered that. No, that wasn't my my theory that I'd thought of. So that's interesting. Another theory is that Jill was murdered by the IRA in a revenge killing. So after Barry George's conviction, a convicted killer sent a letter from prison claiming he was part of a four-man IRA hit squad that murdered Jill. But when did he send this saying that he'd done it? It was shortly after Barry George had been charged and found guilty and sent to prison. The IRA would just, they would take responsibility for things straight away. They usually do, Yeah, they they wouldn't have left it. Or they did. I know they're not active now. Um, Apparently this guy's motive for sending the letter Mm. was that he didn't want to see an innocent man go down for the murder. Um, Which I can understand. Yeah, that does make a bit of sense. So he claimed that under orders from senior IRA members, they had targeted Jill due to her links with senior police officers. Mm -hmm. This individual claimed the British establishment, establishment knew this was the case... And the IRA were getting away with it to avoid compromising the Northern Ireland peace process. Okay. Um, Which I could believe, again. It's believable. Believable. The final theory I'm going to look at then is that Jill was about to expose a VIP 
paedophile ring at the BBC. Mm, see, this is the one that I believe. Yeah, this do is you? What I believe. Okay. Yeah, completely. Thoughts then? So, yeah, completely. She was... The BBC then um, have been really slammed afterwards for not sort of doing a panorama into her murder and things like that. And yeah, she, it sounds, to me, it sounds like she was looking into sort of the whole Savile connection, whether he was bringing children to like the royals, yeah, things like that. And that that's basically they had her killed because she was going to expose them. And the BBC are like, as we know, the BBC are completely. You know, we know they're completely the corrupt domain. now. Everybody yeah. knows that they yeah. were a key part in a lot of it. And Jill was an investigative journalist yeah. by nature. She had that training, that background. Um, she was approachable. And actually, in 2014, a former colleague claimed that Jill had raised concerns mm. about a paedophile ring operating at the BBC. And when Jill had escalated that to bosses, they didn't want to know. Yeah, well, that's the thing. She would have been talking within the BBC about her suspicions. And she'd have been within the... Even if she's thinking that she's talking to someone she can completely trust and she doesn't think they're linked to it, she's talking about this is yeah, this is honestly what I think happened. I think the Queen did it. <laughs> God. The Queen doesn't own the BBC, you do know that. Yeah, but the I think it is the royal family. Okay. Yeah, I think okay. the royal family. We need to run this past legal <laughs> Yeah, I know. This is purely my ideas. This is not what Red um what Red like actually thinks. The investigative journalist Mark Williams Thomas, who was also an active police officer Mm -hmm. years ago. He recently looked into Jill's murder and he said that the police had compiled a list of 100 potential suspects in the initial months following Jill's murder, a list that was kind of put on the back burner once they had um, charged Barry George. Mm -hmm. But he said he's spoken to somebody who was a hitman who has seen this list and knows that there was a person named on that list who is a professional hitman and he was responsible for killing Jill. Wow. And Mark Williams Thomas believes that her murder was definitely something to do with her work on Crime Watch. Mm. It's it's clearly a professional hit. I'm very intrigued by this Serbian connection now, though. I hadn't really ever heard of that, and especially the fact that there was a murder 15 days before. Was it before or after? Before. Yeah, that was... I, almost identical that's quite a journalist shot dead on their doorstep mm. yeah that's probably the one I would go with yeah I don't know I like a conspiracy theory so I'm still I'm still more swaying towards the rules and we'll never find out if that's the case but it'd be interesting if these Serbian gangsters then admitted to anything yeah I, know, I didn't really look at the follow-up to the trial mm. Um, and it's almost irrelevant whether they're found guilty of killing that journalist 15 days before Jill um, because it doesn't matter, it's probably corrupt over there, and whether they get charged for that or not, it's highly likely that they did, and mm. um, that, yeah, potentially they killed Jill. So what do you think? You can um, join in the discussion on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, and we would love to know um, what theory you think would be uh, the right one. Yeah, what's your opinions, guys? Okay, so we also wanted to just take a few moments to thank all of our listeners for continuing to listen to the podcast and we are still in our infancy so we hope that you are seeing some improvements in the sound and we hope that you'll continue to hear that rather than see it Um, and we as ever welcome any feedback that you have we really want to make the podcast the best that we can make it and we did hit a milestone this week we got over 5,000 downloads which is amazing yeah absolutely amazing thank you so much everyone for continuing on our journey with us 
We wanted to say some specific thank yous as well. So we've had some, we've had loads of iTunes reviews and it's great. We're having some really nice feedback from people. So thank you, especially to Ashley LR, Waffle Dog the Wonder Dog, and Colin the Dog. I don't know why we've got two dogs, that dogs. Are following us. They dogs like this. I'm not podcast. saying Ashley's a dog. No. Ashley isn't, Ashley LR. Um, thank you for your comments that you left on iTunes. That's absolutely amazing. And thank you to everybody who's left us a review. Um, honestly, it's it's incredible. Also um, on Instagram, so we've got JackOT3260 and Glenn Scott Styles as well. So thank you for your sort of reviews on the podcast on there. If I tried to name everyone that we've been chatting to on Instagram who's left us nice likes and chats, it would be... Well, it'd be a whole nother episode. That's a great thing. Yeah, honestly, I'm having so much fun chatting to everyone, so thank you very much. Um, On Twitter, we've got Lee Buswell and Laurie Wimberley as well, so thank you very much, guys. And again, thank you everyone who's been retweeting, um, who's been liking our our podcast, and everyone who's been sort of sharing us on Twitter as well. And then on Facebook, um, so Deb Davies, Lisa Wright, Andy Parrish, Lorraine Ledwell, Roy Smith, Sue Hollins, um, Chris Clark, and Jess Carter. Jess Carter of Outlines yeah. Podcast, which I'm a big fan of. Yeah. Um, so everyone that has been chatting on Facebook as well, it's honestly just great to hear your feedback. And it's all been constructive and nice so far, which is wonderful. Hopefully it continues. Yeah. Um, and on Facebook this week, we had a bit of a joke. Okay. I um, appreciate this is a little bit of a light-hearted thing in the middle of all the seriousness, but mm. I thought you'd kind of appreciate it. Um, so Lee Buzzwell on Facebook left a little comment and it was a bit of a joke and I thought it was very funny. Okay. So it was relating to our John Straffen episode. Yep. Episode three. Episode three. In prisons, which part of the keyboard is removed in the computer room? I don't know. The escape key. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> it's hell. terrible, but it's so good. That's bad. <laughs> so there we go. Let's see watching... if you can come up with a new one yeah. for this episode. Lee, yeah. if you can give us some terrible jokes again about Jill Dante. <laughs> oh, fucking hell. I don't think we should. But no. yeah, so thank you again, everybody. Um, and keep the comments and the discussions coming. Yeah, we're so grateful how engaged everybody is. And um, we look forward to seeing you next time. Yeah, I promise it won't have a J in the name this well. One of the people involved oh. does, but it's it's okay. It's, okay, they're not the main subject. There's a lot time. of people in there, so it's okay. Great stuff. <laughs> See, See you next you time. Soon.